listening to Pregnancy Uncut, a new podcast dedicated to telling the untold and unspoken stories of pregnancy complications. We are your hosts, Drs. Alex Umbers and Cara Thompson. Pregnancy Uncut acknowledges the Wadawurrung people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners of the land with which we record this. A special welcome to all our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, especially the mothers, daughters, sisters and aunties. Content warning, heads up guys, this podcast contains materials on pregnancy loss and complications and it may be confronting. Hello, Alex. My friend, my podcast friend. (laughs) Now, today's interview is a super duper special one. You got to interview a lady who really can talk, hey? Oh, she is amazing. I've always admired Jacinta Parsons. I'm an avid ABC 774 listener and I just love tuning in to hear her voice, no matter what she's talking about, she makes it interesting and engaging and she just has a huge amount of empathy for other people. And I think having now had a chat to Jacinta myself in this interview, um, I now understand that that's come about through the experience that she's had, um, which is a really quite a hidden um, experience and that is living with a chronic medical illness. Yeah, I think chronic illness is something we haven't had a chance to explore yet, but it really is one of those things that can just bubble away in the background and like one of our earlier guests referenced, you you can meet someone on the street, but you never really know what their home life or family life looks like and what challenges they face. And I think one incredible thing about Jacinta is she's really so open about her struggles with her Crohn's disease. And she can just articulate it so beautifully, even even though it's incredibly challenging. Yeah, absolutely. And as pregnancy doctors, we see these people in one moment of their hospital journey and their illness journey. And we focus on the pregnancy and the baby. And then we, you know, wave goodbye at the at the end of the experience. But that's the nature of chronic illness is that there's been a history of it long before we've met the patient in the pregnancy ward and the condition will carry on long after. And so chatting to Jacinta has really opened my eyes to chronic illness and how it affects people's mindset and approach coming into pregnancy and how we can better care for people with chronic illness in pregnancy. Yeah, that's wonderful, Cara. And tell me, how were you nervous interviewing Jacinta? <laughs> I was, but the thing about Jacinta is that she knows how to interview and she knows how to be interviewed. So I think I could have asked her the most stupid questions in the world and she would sound eloquent and generous in her responses. So it was a, a pleasure to interview her. Yeah. And look, one of the really generous things to come out of your chat with her is we actually got to pay a little visit, visit to the ABC studios ourselves. It was so cool going in there and seeing the big professional setup. It really <laughs> made me feel like a humble little country mouse with our kitchen set up and the way we do things. But hey, we still managed to get... One day, Alex. Yeah. One day. <laughs> It'll be us. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get into your incredible chat with JP, Cara. Today on Pregnancy Uncut, I'm absolutely thrilled to have the one and only Jacinta Parsons speaking to us today. 
Jacinta, you would all know her beautiful, dulcet, smooth tones from the ABC Radio 774. And she has so kindly agreed to talk to us today about her experience of pregnancy and birth in chronic disease. Thanks for joining us, Jacinta. It's actually the other way around. I actually feel uh, very grateful that there is an avenue and a space to have these conversations. So I jumped at this opportunity and it always feels good to get a chance to tell, you know, your story because all of our stories get together and, you know, hopefully there will be some greater insight into this crazy old experience. <laughs> Absolutely. And Jacinta, before we get into the nitty gritty, I wanted to ask you, you are a Geelong fan from way back <laughs> and you've written about your experience of trying to get your kids on side. I'm in the same position living in Geelong and being a Geelong supporter myself. Oh tell my me, God. tell me your tricks. How do I do it? Uh, yeah, I think what it, I did a lot of subliminal activity, which I might go to jail for, <laughs> but we had a contest between Hawthorne and Geelong uh, 18 years ago. My husband and I weren't sure that we'd ever have more than one child, so we we had to fight to the death. We gave her till she was five to make a decision as to where she would go. And at that crucial moment, I waited to really work on it in the last six months before decision-making and just really focused on how bad the other teams were. So you just got to be very strategic. This is not a game. This is a very serious experience because then that's it forever. Forever. You've got friends to go to the footy with or not will be determined by these very crucial moments. I'm with you. I've got one on board, the Geelong team, and I'm working on the next one. Good girl. So proud. So Jacinta, take me back to when you were in your early 20s and you first noticed that something wasn't quite right. Yeah, it was um, probably quite a classic way of recognising illness, which is just assuming that it's something that will resolve itself. And so especially in early 20s where you're probably not being the most healthy um, and experiencing illness, you sort of, what I find really fascinating about illness and chronic illness especially is that you're always moving the goalposts. So what's normal changes depending on how long you're putting up with certain symptoms. So it actually got to the point for me where I was so sick by the time I got diagnosed with Crohn's disease because progressively I'd put up with the change in my body and the way that I was digesting food and, you know, um, I think I had fishes at the time and all sorts of things that I just dealt with um, until I couldn't walk, you know, and wasn't eating. So it's a pretty obscene way to get yourself into a situation, but it's not uncommon Mm. because I think we kind of, we don't have a lot of confidence and, and also the health system. It's really hard to find places that will know how to diagnose you easily. And so when you finally did get that diagnosis of Crohn's disease, how did that feel? The first, um, you know, as I mentioned, like coming into hospital and um, having a colonoscopy when I was so unwell and then getting a diagnosis was thrilling because finally you uh, have a parameter and an understanding of what your illness is. So you're like, oh, sweet, and you can explain it to people. And people take you seriously because you have an illness 
and it's, you know, you can put it on the table. Um, and that lasts for some time. And, and I guess it is still very helpful to have words to explain to the world outside you. But also they're very limiting and um, not usually always helpful for your own understanding of illness because it manifests individually, uh, of course, differently. And so your experience and someone else's are likely to be different. And, um, you know, it can feel, it's quite fraught, actually, the idea of diagnosis. Mm, Yeah. And when this all happened, you were still in your 20s. Was future fertility and babies something that was on your mind in those early days? Yes, it really was. I've been thinking about, you know, I was just a classic um, woman, young woman who imagined having children and had done so for a long time. And imagined having a lot of children. I really saw myself in a maternal frame, which is surprising to me now because I don't think I'm very good at it. (laughs) Or, you know, particularly maternal or, you know, like going for it. But, yeah, it was a really, um, it was a big focus for me at that time, a yearning almost in my early 20s to be a parent and a mother. And I understood that the likelihood, it it seemed okay with Crohn's disease, it would be something that we would manage, Um, but it wasn't an absolute, you know, kick a goal, it's it's no problem. So I had an awareness that it might be, there might be issues around it. Yeah. And as you mentioned, everyone's journey is very different and there's Crohn's disease and then there's Crohn's disease and you had the latter hey I sure did and um, I think it's such a great lesson for me and you know when you hear anybody's diagnosis you really don't know Mm. what's going on and that can sometimes also that interface in the world outside of you when you say I've got Crohn's and someone says oh yeah my auntie has it or I've got diabetes oh yeah my brother or whatever you have as a chronic illness yeah it's those times where you're like yeah but I really uh, got swacked with it, you know, and uh, it it really moved and progressed in my system in a way that was debilitating. Yeah. Give us some of the details, if you could, Jacinta. We've got a lot of medical people listening. Um, if you don't mind sharing how how it affected you. I'm pumped. I love being able to talk. I mean, it's such a, it is such a joy to have an opportunity to talk about the, your experiences. So thank you again. Um, so, yeah, my my illness, it progressed actually while I was on a drug trial because I must have been on the placebo, which has been a complicated mm. part of this story for me. Um, and, it, you know, with Crohn's disease, of course, it's the entire digestive system. So I had very active disease. And at the time, you know, 400 years ago, there wasn't enormously um, effective management for it. Um, But the disease progressed while I was on this drug trial. Um, And you know what? It's so crazy, but I was thinking at the time, and I think, again, this is not an uncommon patient experience where you feel so indebted to the wonderful health system. Like, you know, I was a student, had no money, but had been cared for and was very cognizant of all of that sort of stuff. So I would put my hand up to go on drug trials as kind of like I'm a citizen, you know, and I'm a participator. So I said yes to a lot of trials. And while I was, again, getting so sick um, while I was on this trial, you know, I had to go straight to bed every night when I would get home from school or from work 
because I couldn't sit on a chair because the disease had progressed to become uh, fistulas um, and so, you know, abscesses and enormous pain. But again, I persisted thinking my data set will be an important comparison. And I'll, I'll be okay. Once I get off this three months or whatever, how long it was, I'll get back in, I'll have some steroids, I'll sort myself out, and I've done it for the team. Oh, I mean, it seems outrageous. I mean, of course, I was checking in with my specialist and he wasn't as alarmed as perhaps he should have been yeah. about the um, degeneration of the illness. But, yeah, just um, got myself into a, a real situation where uh, cleaning up and correcting the fistulas and getting rid of those abscesses became impossible, which often can be the case. So very active disease, which was debilitating and not eating, but then also the enormous pain and the physical kind of experience and exposure of having something so uh, intense happening in your perianal region. So I had drainage tubes and rubber bands. There was mushroom catheters and all sorts of things and protruding and stitched in to my perianal area. And so they it really hurt. And I would have to wear pads every single day for the the abscess to ooze into, you know, and that was like years of that experience. Mm. Um, and we tried everything to try and correct them and then it became clear that we couldn't. And so, you know, there's so much to that story, but basically trying to still um, earn money to live, which Mm. I think is such an important context for these conversations as well. You know, I still had to try and get to work and make just enough money to get by. It was so hard. And, um, yeah, fevers because of the abscesses, all of that stuff. Uh, We tried to fix it through drainage tubes and try and clearing it out as, as often as the case. I'd be going in there every couple of weeks for an EUA examination and under anesthetic get knocked around and see if I could um, fix it but eventually it was decided that there was no other way than to have an ileostomy Um, and so that was to give that perianal area a rest and hopeful um, attempt at recovery. So Jacinta again you're still in your 20s and I imagine all your friends are traveling the world and out partying and doing all the things we do in our 20s and you're wearing pads for your perianal abscesses and and getting an ileostomy bag. How does that feel as a woman in her 20s? Oh, what a beautifully phrased question because that's that hits me so hard because you hold yourself so strongly in these moments of life and it's not until later on where you look back and there's been so much grief experienced in that. Um, I hit a hugely low point in my life after getting the ileostomy bag it would break. I wasn't very good at managing it. And my partner, who is still with me 20 years later, you know, we'd be in the middle of the night and there would be poo all over our bed. Mm. I mean, I just, that that is horrific to talk about, but so important because it's dehumanising and it's embarrassing. You know, the first night I went out after I got my ileostomy bag, it broke and I had poo all over my leg and I just had to go home. Just, just you know, trying to learn how to manage that sort of stuff. And having a different relationship with you as itself as a woman as being attractive. So I I consciously made decisions to not ever want that for myself. You know, I thought that's not for you anymore. You just have to cope with what this is and you can't feel bad that you are 
grotesque in, in my mind at the time with my ableist ideas of body. Um, you just have to cope with it and shut down a lot of that grief that I was experienced. But I hit a really low point, which is another really important part of this, um, because I just felt worthless suddenly. Who was I? Like, you know, all my friends were doing other things and I was needy and sick and had an ileostomy bag. So it really changed my perception of self, but it also created for me a real catalyst to change the way I thought about myself and my life because it was such a low point. You talk about feeling that you couldn't be responsible for anyone else in your life and tried to talk your partner away. We desperately want to be on even ground, you know. So I think at the same time when you have a partnership with somebody who's also in their 20s at the time and what you're asking them to do is clean up your ileostomy bag in the middle of the night, I just felt less than and I couldn't cope with someone loving me because it didn't Mm. feel like I could carry that burden. You know, it's a big thing to accept love and care, especially when that's not how the relationship, well, not especially, I'm sure it's complex for everyone, when that relationship hasn't been like that and it's transformed Mm. into something, to go, do you really want to do this with me? I wouldn't. Like, how about you just go? I I cannot bear the guilt of having to ask someone to live this life with me. So, yeah, it's, um, it's very, very complex. Mm. And Jacinta, tell us about the day that you were vacuuming in your house and a strange thought appeared seemingly out of nowhere. This is my favourite story of my entire life. So, yeah, I'm about to go in um, into hospital the next day to have another EUA. And I, I would often bleed a lot during that experience. You know, there would be blood and there, you know, pain, all that sort of stuff. And I just had this random thought. It was five o'clock in the afternoon, I think. Um, wouldn't that be really hard for someone if they went in and had a procedure in hospital before they knew they had a child and lost a child that they never knew they had? I had that thought um, and had been so sick. I was on, you know, medication that was not right for um, having children, all that sort of stuff. At the time, I thought that was the case anyway. So, yeah, I just really weirdly thought, imagine if that happened to me. So I went to a chemist and got a pregnancy test. Like, what up? Like, it's so strange. Magical, I reckon, if I'm going to throw some to my science friends, my medical science friends, I'm going to say the word magic. (laughs) Take Um, that. Yeah, take that. And uh, had a pregnancy test and I was pregnant with our first child after not believing that it could at all be possible with the, the health state that my body was in and far out, like best day of my life. Wow. Wow. And so, you know, you're not someone who takes pregnancy tests on the reg. It just just came to you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had in the past because, you know, we had been trying, but you know, it was such a, um, it was such something we did not, it just didn't think was going to happen for, if at all, certainly not then. And as you said, it's like life had found her way to you. I love that. It is and it's magic. And I think that intersection between 
medical world and the grandness of life is always is incongruity. And I bet you have that on the wreck, you yeah. know, just the world that you were in where you are witnessing the miraculous within the kind of sphere of our medical lives. Yeah, absolutely. Not everything can be explained away by science, hey? Yeah. So how did it feel when you've got, you're in such an unwell body and you're going into hospital all the time, you're on all these medications and now you're carrying a little life inside you? Uh, Horrifying. Wonderful, exciting. You know, we would try and focus there. But I felt terrible about myself, I think. Isn't that, again, it's like that victim blaming idea where you feel responsible for this life. And we all do, I'm sure, as parents have this, you know, innate sense of responsibility. And when your body is broken and sick, I just felt so heightened and worried about what I could or could not possibly do with this body. Yeah, it's a really, you know, again, grief comes up when I talk about it. Such a frightening moment in life. Were the doctors worried about your pregnancy in terms of your medications and and how unwell you were? Yes. You know, I got put into, you know, immediately into the specialist area. And so, you know, I had an obstetrician, but no one, um, they hadn't uh, done a cesarean, which I needed to have as a result of the anal fistulas and because, of course, of the ileostomy, I think. Well, no one had really, that that was there at the time, had really done much with an ileostomy bag at a birth. So it was a bit like, whoa, okay, we're, we're learning together. And, you know, they sent me up to the cancer ward to talk with some specialist nurses there around ileostomy and pregnancy and just frightening things, you know, like whole bowel might come out as a result. And this is why you're doing this is that there's these images of a pregnant body and mine did not fit that image. You know, it is with bag of poo on it. And, you know, I'm on steroids, I think still, but I was bloated and wild and I looked not like myself. I was not the image of beauty and glowing pregnancy, which again is just like, you know, you're holding on to just hopefully get through this. That's all it is. It's not time to relax and have fun. It's like, okay, we just have to see if we can get get this to happen. And doctors would have been worried about the risk of baby growing small and coming too early because when the baby's growing in such a, I don't want to use the word hostile, but it, it almost feels like. Please do that. I feel like heard and seen to have it described that way. It's, a, it's an angry body. Yeah, your body's fighting all this inflammation. Your whole yeah. bowel is yelling and screaming at you and the little baby's trying to carry on and grow and it's, it, it doesn't always work out as we hope. Yeah, I think that is a beautiful description of how it felt. And I feel seen by you saying that because I think naming it as that, that's how we feel. We feel like our body's revolting against us and it's revolting. (laughs) But, you know, like that it's just um, not working with us and we're powerless, which is the truth of our bodies. But getting exposed to that in this environment where you have another life in you that there is no control necessarily, or you feel like you have none, um, is trauma-inducing, I would say, quite sincerely. Yeah, yeah. 
So I imagine it would have been a very carefully planned operation with senior senior bowel surgeons, senior obstetricians, senior anaesthetic doctors. But as life has a way of working out, your daughter wanted to come on a weekend. On a weekend in the Easter break. So Perfect. every um, obstetrician and bowel surgeon is away, you know, having a lovely time somewhere and is not available. Um, my water's broke. So, you know, two weeks before she was actually due to have the cesarean. So hugely shocking. Um, and when, you know, I went in to, uh, you know, explain my situation, it was like all the planning we had done wasn't required because you arrive at a at a desk with some lovely administrators and trying to then explain this story to health professionals that haven't had any exposure to it was so frightening. Mm. There was an obstetrician that we finally, you know, found and and he was going to do the birth. And he stood at the end of my bed just after I'd come in and they were assessing me. And he literally scratched his his chin and he said, oh, not sure how we're going to do this. And so I was like, far out, man. If you don't know how to do this, I don't know that anyone's going to know how to do this. Wow. So just, I think, unaware what, like, so he's probably just ruminating and wondering about how he will go about it. From from my perspective, with my whole life on the, on a bed with a baby that I'm so frightened will not come properly or, or, or survive or, or whatever will happen, that is devastating. You know, it's a frightening thing to experience something like that and it really affected me. Mm. And here we are nearly two decades later and you can recall his exact mannerisms and his exact words. Yeah, and I remember that whole experience, you know, and there was some great kindness as well that night where, um, you know, unsurprisingly nurses registered the experience I was having. My partner couldn't come into the theatre because they wanted to put me under general anaesthetic because of the abscess issues, uh, which was a change of plans, you know, all that kind of stuff. And um, I remember looking around the room and saying to them, please, can we all do our best job? Like, mm. what, like begging strangers, oh, thank you, you know, and I'm, I'm no trouble, but I really can we all try our best? And um, the anaesthetist said, I'm going to write on your hand when you wake up who's arrived and what time they came. So no matter what happens, first thing you can do is check your hand and see that oh. it's all okay. Oh, and um, going to sleep just not knowing what would happen. And that's another interesting aspect, I think, about this in terms of that interface between health professionals and the humans, you know, that come to birth is we don't know anything. We just know this is really serious and hard and we're out of control. And so the trauma, I think, exists in that space sometimes. Yeah. The space between the fear and the not knowing and the not quite sure of the parameters of what might happen. Yeah. Tell me what happened when you woke up in the anaesthetic day. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever written about this, but the actual thing that happened, maybe I've written about it, was this beautiful uh, woman leaned over me and she'd obviously smoked a lot of cigarettes in her life and had a really raspy voice and was weathered and beautiful. And she leaned over me and she said, 
darling, you've woken up, which is, you know, again, such a kindness. And I said, even, you know, when you post anesthetic brain where you're like, don't say the thing that you're thinking, don't say the thing that you're thinking, (laughs) do not tell them what you want to say. And I couldn't stop but say to her, and what a beautiful face to wake up to. (laughs) To the nurse who's like, man, chill. And I looked at my hand and on there was girl 840. And it's like, oh, we have done it. And I think that's also the beginning of a great amount of trauma that kind of hits you as well. You know, I was on um, morphine and ketamine as well at that time. And my bag broke um, once I'd been taken back into the room and everyone had gone home and I was there with this baby Mm. and my bag broke and having to speak to um, maternal nurses about an ileostomy bag and they're like, we don't, how do we deal with that? I'm like, okay, this is what we need to do. Just just a mess, but also sitting up against the miracle. It, it, okay, are we okay? I think we're okay. I think we're okay. You know, when you come trying to come down from that fear and realize actually everything's actually fine and nothing went wrong. You're actually okay. But I think it took me years to deal with that reality that we were okay because the fear and the trauma of it was so significant, but not in a way at that time, which we're so much better now that I knew how to articulate or I had support to explain back to me. Or, you know, for my second child, which happened later, there was far more of an understanding around how we describe post-birth trauma perhaps, if that's what it's called. Absolutely. And how we can help mitigate against long-term issues as a result of those conversations that should happen very close before and very close after as long as as well as all around it you know yeah yeah and and absolutely then it it wasn't a conversation that was being had no nobody talked to me at all about any aspect of that you know and even coming down off drugs while I had a baby and she, she was crying I didn't even know I was like didn't even know how to dress the child, you know. I felt, and it was the old women's hospital that looked like, you know, scary people roamed it yep. and stuff. So it was really hard, so hard. You go from pregnancy and birth, which feels like an isolated situation, yeah, and then you come out of that and you've got a whole nother kind of scenario that you have to deal with and it feels like they're not even related but they inform each other and they frighten the hell out of each other, you know, but they're not, you're not even that same girl that you were an hour ago, you know, you're now this other human. Yeah. Yeah. That huge chasm that suddenly opens up. Yeah. Yes. And I just want to touch on one more moment of your pregnancy before we talk about what it's like parenting with a chronic illness. We know that people like to claim women's bodies as public property in pregnancy How did that experience go for you being a person with an ileostomy bag? I'm writing about this as well. I've got another book coming out in um, September about women and ageing and that whole public idea of the the pregnant body Mm. and the pregnant body being public uh, asset. Um, It was unreal because I was like your warning to don't feel like (laughs) you can come and touch a lady's body because I had that little secret, you know, um, hand grenade, you know, hanging off my stomach. So people would come for a feel without asking for permission to do so. And I'd go, guess what you just touched? 
They were like, what's that? It's like, well, it's my ileostomy bag and you, sh- you know, like just a joyful kind of um, thing. And obviously, you know, the compassion of that is it's beautiful, but we really need to far out. There's so much shift we need to yeah. make into the way we perceive the bodies that are not just women's bodies um, having babies, you know, all of these ideas that we've been constructed with aren't very freaking helpful. Yeah. So, Jacinta, how did it feel to take this screaming bundle of life home who also has all her own bodily fluids to deal with? How was it like parenting as a person with a chronic illness? Um, really challenging. You're tentative when you're sick, which I think is another really interesting thing we don't talk about enough. Um, we anticipate things will go wrong because we've had that experience and we've been shocked into that kind of, oh, far out, the world actually goes wrong a lot of the time. You sort of, you know, I think that you bring that into parenting, especially when they're young. Um, I pooed on her before she pooed on me, which is also... Do you know, by the way, I didn't just poo everywhere the whole time with my Ali asked me bag. <laughs> I did have it for many years and did keep it on me most of the time, but there are many stories of where I didn't, which I don't even know. I didn't even talk to anyone about that at the time. Is that unusual? Was I a bad bag person? I don't even know. But, yes, it came off on her and I was like, oh, wow, this is like a thing, you know, to have a child that you've actually done that to. I'm just everything, you know, it's just like it's medication, it's energy. There was a moment where she's like she'd see me in hospital. She just was frustrated and bored with this whole thing, like everyone is, you know. We're bored of you being sick and it's why can you please do something about it? Yeah. And that whole trying to explain that as a parent to a child is a really complex thing because there hasn't been much except until this book that I've been part of, um, we've got this explaining what it's like to go through this as a parent, not just children that are dealing with terminal ill parents, but parents that are chronically sick where that state doesn't change is, you know, is a real thing to come to terms with. Because as a a toddler with endless energy who just wants to play all the time, was it hard for her to accept that mum couldn't always do that? Yes, it was really hard. And, you know, through through it, the other side of that is obviously you build a compassionate person who realises that we don't all come a particular way and we can't all be the way we want each other to be. We have to accept those things. But you don't want to be the one that's the person having to teach it through you, you know. You're like, yeah. I don't want to be that one. But so tired and so fatigued and so sick at times that I couldn't get out of bed and you could just see her looking at me like, oh, here we go, you know, <laughs> with that four- or five-year-old sass. And I talk to her about that now and she's horrified. But I just think it's it's one of those aspects where you feel, I mean, parenting, you feel this failure, you know, um, and if it's gendered, I'm not sure, but as a mother there is mother's guilt. You just feel like you're never getting it right. You add to that illness and incapacity um, and I think it, it compounds those already emergent feelings. You write about a time when your daughter said, come on, mum, just go and go to the doctor, just get yourself fixed already. And part of that guilt that you just spoke about makes you wonder if she's right. Yeah, because I think that's what we hear from a very fast-moving very capital-driven world that fix it and move on, 
we have a certain amount of compassion for you, but then it gets very boring to hear that you're sick all the time and it doesn't fit into our world. It doesn't fit into our workplaces. It doesn't fit into our social lives. It doesn't really fit. So, okay, that's your experience, but maybe you'll have to go off and do that. So when she says that to me as a beautiful, you know, child just wanting it to work out, it hits really hard because, well, you're frightened that there's a truth to it. Maybe I should. Maybe I am being a sook. Maybe I am better than I, I, I feel like I am. Just the self-doubt that comes on with illness and health professionals were incredibly important to me to validate my experiences and to say, you are really sick. That's okay. And you are allowed to be. You shouldn't have to get out of bed necessarily if you can't. Like it's okay. That's so powerful, those those people that come in your lives, health professionals, to validate the experience that you're having. And I love how you are able to highlight the, the flip side of parenting with a chronic illness, which is fostering that sense of empathy and flexibility and, and patience that kids don't always get exposed to when they're used to everything working and getting everything they want all the time. And that's a wonderful gift. It is actually a wonderful gift. And it's not for everyone. And, you know, when you ever talk about, you know, illness being a gift or a wonderful experience, I'm very mindful that that's not the way it is for everybody, nor is it the way all the time. It's a fluxing situation. But for our family, it has been, continues to be such a great teacher because it taught me so much. So I brought that into my parenting, you know, how do we focus more keenly on what matters? How do we live in a world where we know things are fragile and still maintain hope and positive love, you know, and all the things. And, and of course, difference, like we're not all this type of human that we get presented and we need to have room for our difference Mm. rather than expecting our difference to conform to the ideas that we've been given. And that comes across in all the ways that we are different as humans. Like I think we're changing so much, you know, neurodiversity and all the things that we are celebrating now in a very different way than we used to in the past. But it's it's been something that we've needed to actually really shift our heads around is how we teach, how we think about ourselves as bodies and as minds and as people in this very constrained world that we're in. Mm. And you being so proud and owning your condition must be such a, a, a wonderful teacher for your children to, to not be ashamed of our differences. Yeah, that's a lovely thing to say. And I, I think that's so true. And facing my own ableism, why did I find the change in my body so confronting? Mm. And I performed pride. I didn't really feel it. And I think, you know, I sort of knew that that was the pathway to pride was to pretend and to not ever be silenced about it. And to, it's embarrassing to talk about these things still, but I feel like it's my job to do it because we need to normalize all of these aspects of our humanity so that we can survive these things. Yeah. Jacinta, after you had your miracle baby and your beautiful daughter, when the time came that you wanted to add to your family, was it such smooth sailing getting pregnant again? No, absolutely not. And it felt like we had been given the magic baby and wow, you know, I really think about it still like that. Uh, Trying to have another child was absolutely impossible. 
for eight years and we just didn't even think it would happen. You know, maybe my condition also, maybe I had PCOS. I don't know. But that's the other thing is those intersections with your health state. You sort of think everything is that. But really, you forget to look at all the other aspects of you that might be contributing to fertility. You know, it's also that. So anyway, we eventually did get pregnant again eight years later, which is one of those things too, since we're talking about parenting and pregnancy, people are like, got the same partner or what happened? Oh, okay. Yeah, you know. So I often have to like overtly say, yeah, you know, uh, People ask me why all the time. Really? Nothing, you know, it's like, yeah. wow. It's our lack of understanding of secondary infertility. We know about primary infertility and we know not to ask, but yeah, secondary infertility, we haven't quite got our heads around that one as a society, have we? No, or just even this neat idea of children coming within two years or three years of each other, all the, you know, all of these constructs that are so... You would, you're exposed to it all the time. That's not how the world is, you know. Mm. But we have these ridiculous, and this ridiculous thing that we think we can ask people things. Like actually get over it and deal with the fact that you don't know the answer to that question and don't think you can ask that question. Yeah, I will tell you if I want you to know. Yeah. So, yeah, that was after the trauma of a first birth, which I'm, you know, I feel like I need to ask you questions about this, but I ended up mm. getting psychological therapy and support for this birth because it was right from word go traumatic uh, because it spoke to the last one so keenly for me. This one I did not have an ileostomy bag, but I was still unwell and I just felt frightened that something would go wrong. What's so fascinating is when something did go wrong, I was relieved. I was like, okay, this is the thing that's going to go wrong. Now I know what it is. Now I can deal with it. And it was, you know, a liver condition that we didn't know for a long period of the pregnancy was actually due to some of the medication that I'd been taking for Crohn's. Okay. Really rare kind of interaction um, that was only by chance found out. But you would know what I went through, which I sort of blocked out, but daily visits to the hospital to monitor the health of the child, you know, blood tests all the time. So there was this real condition that was adding to the risk, but in a way being able to, again, name it and see it and face it head on was helpful in dealing with it. I think, you know, dealing with chronic illness, we, again, the, the fact that we come into spaces and experiences in life with this knowledge that stuff totally goes wrong you are totally that person. You're the one that, that it didn't work out for. You know, something went wrong with you. You, you know, you might die. All, all the things that you face um, that you can avoid often in your early 20s and 30s is right up against you. And so you enter spaces expecting things to go wrong, which I've mentioned before, but I just think it's a really yeah. important aspect of understanding the psychology is there's trauma around that, you know, how, how we come to, to pregnancy. That ability to to completely relax and enjoy the experience of pregnancy and safety of birth has been taken away from you. Yeah, totally. And trying to work out what's real and what's not real is why I actually accessed help. My fears here are massive. They often became other things, like I was worried about world wars and, you know, just classic kind of experiences of anxiety not necessarily about the birth, but, you know, just um, really concerned about the world itself and my safety within it. Mm. 
Yeah. And Jacinta, you were able to be awake to experience the birth of your son. Tell me about the moment when the surgeon leant over and and picked that moment to tell you something. Yeah. So again, the other real concern here was adhesions. So after surgeries on my abdomen, and I'd had surgery as a child for an appendicitis. So there was noted adhesions that very first time I had a cesarean. And there was a concern again that my bowel would be cut in the process of Caesar. Does that make sense to you? Absolutely. It's all stuck down and matted and Yeah. And so in my mind, how that's happening in my body is horrific. You know, what's what's gonna happen when you cut me while we're having while you're doing the Caesar? I'm just there going, is this am I about to have another ileostomy bag? Are we, you know, you just don't know what's going to happen. So I was anxious about it, but he leans over that little curtain and says to me, like a big smarty pants, while well, the baby has just come out of me, you're really lucky. We just missed your bow. You're not to have any more children. Mate, are you joking? Is that, and because I have my body open and he's the one that can put it back together, I'm like, thank you, sir. Oh, how delightful. You're beautiful. Oh, you know, like. So, horrific. so vulnerable. In that moment. So vulnerable and such an abuse of that vulnerability. And it makes me really cross. I mean, most health professionals don't because I sort of understand the complexity of it. But it felt really like smug, you know? Hang on, buddy. Like, uh, this is this is my life, mm. not just your medical experience on a Friday morning, yep. how you were assessing me. This is, and you've got me open and I'm, I hated it so much. I was so anxious. Every tug Mm. that he made, I didn't want him to touch me. You know, like I just felt so affected. And luckily the um, psychologist that I'd been dealing with had said to me, which was beautiful. And this is where the new form of understanding our psychological dimension here. She said, we will expect that you will cry every day for two weeks after this. That's normal. I was disassociated. Once I'd come out, I didn't know where I was anymore. I looked out a window and I was like, I don't know where I am. Mm. Like I was really impacted by that. But again, not really clear on the language, not really clear about the okayness to have the experience. Luckily she gave me those parameters though because I did cry every single day Mm. for two weeks and didn't quite know who I was anymore, you know. Does that make sense to you yeah. hearing that, like the reaction? Absolutely. It, it's just that that flippant throwaway nature that we sort of almost without thinking say these things to people in the most vulnerable moments and the power that has to just say, oh, no more babies for you. That's life-changing. And the fact that it had been so close, mate, that's serious for me. You know, I've carried that for a long time thinking, God, if I ever need abdominal surgery, what does that mean? It, the reality of that is something. But the lack of compassion, it boggles me to imagine that you're just a, an obstetrician and you're not a human, you know? What? Or more to the point, it feels like it, you're just a patient and not a human to him. I am just a body, not even a per Like there is no, you're a body with an issue you know, but yeah, there is no human there. There is no woman of a certain age. There is no family. There is no child that has just been born that's coming into their lives. There is no, mm-hmm. you know, 
And maybe this is the complexity. Maybe that's how it has to be to be good at that, those jobs. I don't know. So that there is that separation so that you can make decisions that are non-emotive. I don't know. But there needs to be a space between that and my body and my experience. Just the skill level that we take for granted from so many health professionals who know how to do that, who know that you're a human and can balance between your experience as a sick person and your life is needs to be valued more and needs to be remunerated more. You know, like it's it's an incredible thing that we need in our in our systems. So he should be on the shush and do the job and don't talk to me, please. Yeah, we'll take your surgical skills, but not your counselling skills. And it's a mark against your name, you know, like that you haven't done that, that you don't think you need to. I don't know. Gosh, who knew there was so much anger yes. about this? No, but it's it's bang on because, and it's something yeah that we're we're finally starting to talk about in in the surgical world and the medical world because a lot of people can do a beautiful cesarean and a beautiful operation. That's not that's not what makes you a good obstetrician. It's the the empathy and the communication and that oh. seeing someone as a whole person. And if you can't do that, then you're not a good obstetrician. I feel like if I could get through the computer and hug you for saying that, for you to say that is so powerful and so wonderful to hear um, because as a patient you don't know whether it's the right, if it's okay to think that way because of the pressures. I don't know. But the fact that you've just, it's just, that's everything. But it's also, again, just just if you want to look at it as a scientific point of view, if you if you're a bully and you're mean and you're awful to your patients and your colleagues, you will have worse outcomes. If all you care about is, you know, your your surgical outcomes and your, you know, infection rate and complication rate, then being nice is part of that and it makes your outcomes better. There's, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. I love that and, and I hope, I mean, this is why this conversation with you is so, um, so wonderful for me because having access to you as an obstetrician who has these insights, it's really powerful to hear that that's the changing headspace and the way that um, that the profession is thinking about itself. I think that's just beautifully encouraging. There's a long way to go, hey? We're starting to have the conversations, but... <laughs> One podcast at a time. <laughs> Jacinta, thank you so much for coming on Pregnancy Uncut and sharing your incredible story. You're an amazing mum and you're an amazing advocate for parenting with a chronic illness and your story will mean so much to so many listeners. So thank you. Oh, I can't thank you enough again. I really feel it's just such an important thing that you're doing from where you sit and I thank you so much. I feel like I've been to therapy again. Who knew there were still strong emotions coming out of me? So thank you so much for having me. That's it for today. If you got something out of this episode, please remember to subscribe, rate and review our podcast. Also, we love hearing from you. If you have feedback or suggestions, email us at pregnancy.uncut at gmail.com or you can find us at pregnancyuncut.com or on Instagram. If you or someone you know wants to share their story with us, we'd love to hear from you. Talk soon. Thank you.